Great to see you this morning. My name's Tammy, and together with my husband Steve, um, we get to lead the central vineyard here. You won't meet Steve this morning because he's currently in a field in Somerset, setting up a tent. Um, We're at a festival this week called New Wine, um, which is basically eight or 9,000 Christians in a field, um, hopefully being warm and not wet as usual. (laughs) Um, So I get the, the... well, I, I don't know if it's the short straw. Last night he was ironing his shirts and I was like going through my talk and I was just like, oh, but you're the one that's good at writing and talking and I'm good at ironing. This is all wrong. <laughs> I was like, but I can't go and set up tents. So um, <laughs> this was the only alternative. <laughs> so this morning we are looking at part two um, in our series of the book of Daniel. We're calling it a creative minority. And last week, Steve spoke at length about what a creative minority is. And he kind of summed it up in one sentence, and that is a community of people living out a resilient faith in a culture that is living a different story. Or as Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said, you can be a minority living in a country whose religion, culture, and legal system are not your own, and yet sustain your identity, live your faith, and contribute to the common good. It isn't easy. It demands a complex finessing of identities. It involves a willingness to live in a state of cognitive dissonance. It isn't for the faint-hearted, but it is creative. Creative minorities are committed people, who remain faithful to their own beliefs, regardless of the competing stories and cultural messages around them. And so we're using the story of Daniel and his friends to help show us what a creative minority might look like. Daniel, as we heard last week, was a Jewish exile, being slowly immersed into the Babylon culture. And we saw from chapter one that they made Daniel look Babylonian. They, they gave them lessons so that they would speak Babylonian and even take a Babylonian name. They were immersed. But one thing that Daniel refused to do was to take and eat the food from the king's table. He refused to ingest the food and fully embrace the culture. And we looked at why did Daniel do this? Because he knew that if he ate the food, his identity would be completely lost. As one commentator wrote, accepting the palace's provision involved a compromise of faith in a way that accepting a share in its life, its work, its education, and, it, and its names do not. Believers in other contexts or other cultures might have identified their sticking point somewhere else. They might have drawn their line at a different point. But for Daniel, um, it was the food And Johnny Goldingway said, assimilation is to be avoided. So Daniel embraced the tension that existed between his attempt to remain faithful to God while living as an exile in Babylon. And in many ways for us as followers of Jesus, we recognize we no longer live in a culture that is defined by the Christian story. And as a result, we find ourselves living in a minority, in a culture that is telling a different story. And as we wrestle with this reality, the temptation is that we'll try and resolve it ourselves. We try and resolve the tension by giving in or by compromising. 
we let go of things that have been held dear for thousands of years and we fall on the sword of cultural relevance. But instead, we get to choose a creative minority. We practice cultural resilience and look for creative solutions to show an alternative story and God's, a God's story that leaves to us having a flourishing life. Daniel has taught the people of God for centuries. And I hope that it will continue to teach us. How do we live in a culture that has a competing vision of what it means to be human? A competing vision of what it is to be flourishing in life. A competing vision of what it is to be free and live in freedom. A competing vision of how we should live our life. How do we live in a town like Northampton or Wellingborough, Kettering, wherever you're from this morning, when where we live has a competing vision for living and it competes with Jesus' Jesus's vision for the world. And not just how do we live here, but how do we succeed here? How do we, like Daniel and his friends, get to choose to succeed in culture? How do we serve our towns and cities right? How do we serve the culture right? How do we serve our culture correctly? But also... We want to press and form the cultures around us into God's vision for the world. And we want to do both. But they're big things. They sound like big questions and ones that we need to know the answers to. But there is a profound tension. If you don't feel the cultural tension between your faith and the people around you and the culture they're living in, then you need to question whether there's something wrong because being uh, having a heart and being a follower of Jesus and being loyal to Christ in a town like Northampton or wherever you come from it will rub up against the identity of the people that you meet why because there are times when you have to not participate there are times when you will have to say no I'm not going to believe what you're saying. No, I'm not going to join in with the things that you're asking me to do. No, I'm not going to participate. To do what you're asking me to do would mean being disloyal to Christ. And I'm more loyal to Christ than I am to you or to Northampton or to to anyone. And the church is shaped by a vision of God, God's kingdom. The ordering of human life by an alternative vision to our worldly culture. Christians belong to the church, to Christ, the body. And the book of Daniel is speaking to us that we live our lives loyal to God. We live our lives, if we're Christians, in that loyalty to Christ and his vision for the world. What he believes about life, what he believes about love, what he believes about freedom, joy, sex, money power, what he believes about all those things is what we want to practice believing. We just live our lives under that order, and all our lives are ordered under that. And when we, and, and when we walk out our house, we walk out here every day, we are, our lives are being competed for. There's always things that are going to compete, but what we want to say is that we go with Jesus. 
but it just means we'll find it hard to live in this world. We'll find it hard to live as a, as a follower of Jesus. It's hard work. But what we don't want to do is pack up shops and um, you know, find, build a hut in the middle of the woods somewhere or a tent in Shepton Mallet where you're surrounded by 9,000 Christians. That gets wearing. <laughs> um, we think there must be an easier way to do life and to live off the land than to come here and, and live in this town or this city. You know, there isn't a place you can go where they're going to be relatively safe from having too many moral dilemmas. We don't do that. We actually live here. We choose to live here in the middle of town, in the middle of the town that has a competing vision than what we think and we would do for the good of God's world. So what's it look like to make the right choices and be people living in a creative minority? So we're going to turn to Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, for anyone that wants to know, that's 90 foot or 27 meters, and six cubits wide, and set it on a plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he'd set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. Then they, the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Wow. How about that? Every single person you could imagine in that town had to stop what they were doing and respond in worship, otherwise they would have been met with a fiery death. Can you even imagine that? A statue erected in Northampton Town Centre. And what, whenever we heard a certain sound, we'd have to stop and worship it. Worship it. it sounds grand, Although at the state of affairs in our local authority, there wouldn't be the budget for it. <laughs> Unless you've had your eyes closed, we've been on national news this week um, to just say how broke Northampton is. Um, but we believe in God in, in the renewal of all things, so um, we're prepared for that. But guess what? Our idols don't have to be as central and as large as that. We can have personal idols. What are the things that make us stop what we're doing and lose focus? What are the things that all of a sudden will stop and we'll, we'll, t we'll worship? If you think you don't worship other idols, then think about this. Think about the fact that you are constantly intoxicated and indoctrinated by a secular worldview, a secular life that we worship. Think about progress money, materialism, sexual freedom, justice, 
radical autonomy, pursuit of individual happiness, pursuit of you and you alone is what matters. That is a praised way of life. And all of us here are some form of, of, of taking that in in some way. And those are the things that we worship. And we think, we think when we read this, oh, we, we wouldn't worship ancient gods. We would never worship a gold statue. We'd never bow down when we heard music and stop what we were doing. We wouldn't worship some of the ancient gods, Bacchus, the god of wine. Uh, we wouldn't worship Moloch by turning our babies over to be burned into the fire. We would never do things like that. But we drink too much. We invest our money in the wrong things. We might have treated our children less than what is right and good and godly. We might have chased our ambitions and our careers over the relationships and the visions that God's called us to. And when we actually stop and reflect about what we do and why we do it, we would find that we do many of the same things that those in, in those ancient worlds would have done. There will always be a test for our allegiance. There will be things in our life that we choose first. But how will we refuse such things and live under a different way of life? A creative minority. How do our friends do it in Daniel? So let's read on. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews who have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They, serve, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music. If you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? How very interesting. Firstly, very susceptible. he's not telling them not to worship their God, Yahweh, for them. He's not saying... Just, you know, forget about him. He's just, he just say, oh, just add this. Just worship this. Don't worship your God. You can worship your God, but this is what you must do too. It's very subtle persuasion that there. And it almost, when I was reading it, it reminded me of um, in the garden of, of Genesis when um, the serpent was, you know, is saying to Eve, are you sure God said that? Are you sure that you shouldn't take from that fruit. I think, you know, and it's very, it's very um, contextual to the way life is. Subtle messages constantly coming in. Now, where you hear the sound of, of the music or the band, we'll call it a band because there's so many musical instruments there, 
If you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. If you will bow down, you know, you can just do it right now. You can worship. You know, we won't need to worry about it. But if you don't worship, I'm just going to throw you in that, that blazing furnace over there and nothing could be done then. No, no one will rescue you. He's basically making the point that he's the most powerful man on the planet and he's going to make them worship him because if, he, if they don't, they're going to die. How do they respond? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Oh my goodness, every time I read that, I just like <laughs> get chills because it's just, their response is just so good. They weren't going to participate. There was a non-participation. And actually it was a non-violent non-participation. Do you see how nice they were? <laughs> They're really nice guys. They, they seem to be really kind in that moment. You know, it's like, okay, we, we did get the letter, King, but we're not going to argue with you. We're not going to fight with you. We're not going to debate with you. We're just not going to do it. You know, and Your Majesty, if you want to send us to the fire, we understand. You've got to do what you've got to do. I get it. Our God could save us. He will save us. But even if he doesn't save us and we perish we're still not going to worship you. Not sure if Nebuchadnezzar knew what to do with that kindness. He just got really angry. He gets furious with them. They don't plan a protest. They don't get a hashtag and start tweeting about what's wrong with the world. They don't make a Facebook post and they didn't call BBC News, we've got a breaking story or, you know lawyers for religious freedom. They didn't do any of that. They just said, Your Majesty, we're sorry, but we're not sorry. We're not going to do it. We're not pledging ourselves to your thing. And why not? Why didn't they do it? Because they could have just done it there and then, and it wouldn't have mattered. They could still serve God. But this is fundamental, and you have to, to hear this, because they were Jews. And the very beginning of their commandment says, you shall worship no other gods. They didn't worship this idol because of who they were. They didn't worship because they knew who they were. We're Jews. We don't worship other gods. We're not going to do it. Their action flowed out of their identity, Sadly, sometimes we can prove we are more consumers of society than knowing our identity in the living God. But we want to be followers of Jesus. We want our actions to go the way that Jesus would choose. And we have to remember that those of us that are followers of Jesus, if you're a Christian, Jesus is Lord. 
Jesus is Lord. And that's who you are. Therefore, that means we live a life under the rule and reign and the vision that Jesus calls us to. And his teachings, his teachings, his vision for money, his vision for the poor, his vision for marriage, his vision for sex, his vision for food, for provision, for friendship, for sacrifice, for eternity. We live under his vision. And that's who we are. We're a creative minority. We say no to things. Why, why should we say no to things? Why should we, in a non-participant way, being kind, say no thank you? Why do we want to do that? We want to do it because of who we are. See, whenever there is a commandment given in the New Testament and the Old Testament, it's always rooted in who we are. An easy one to choose is, you know, you will, you will abstain from sexual immorality. Why? Because you're a Christian and the living God lives in you. You are not your own. And it always roots back to who you are. Why do we live this way? Because of who we are. They said no to the idols because of who they were. We're Jewish, we're followers of Yahweh, we don't do that. I'm sorry. Very politely, I'm sorry. And often when I think about it, I'm going off peace now, but when, um, when I just had this vision of them, you know, being told by King Nebuchadnezzar that they were going to die, and their response could have been just to be like, I don't get it like that, but actually their response was to go, doesn't matter. I serve the living God. That's going to be my posture. And what they said about God to Nebuchadnezzar. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your hand. You know, they were clear. Listen, God that we serve is more powerful than you think. But even if he does not, and I think that takes so much faith to say, even if he does not, they know God's ability. They know that God is able to save them. They make that clear. They don't know if God's purpose is to save them. He might not save us. But that's not the issue, because what mattered to them is not the deliverance, but the obedience. That's what mattered to them. We don't care if we're delivered or not. All we care about is being obedient to God. We're followers of Yahweh. We're followers of God. We want to be obedient. We're Jews, and we shall worship no other. And faith is not being sure of all of God's ways. Sometimes the ways of God are summed up with, I don't know, I don't know what God is doing or he's going to do. Biblical faith knows the power of God, but it holds intention, the freedom of God. But if not, we might think a better translation of this would have been that they, um, like I said, got in Nebuchadnezzar's face 
you know, and they were just them going, right, Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to bring down God's deliverance from heaven, we're going to bind the fire in Jesus, and this is what's going to happen to you. And they get all pumped. <laughs> if I had a table, I'd slam it. But, um, but it wasn't like that. Their faith wasn't going to predict God's ways. Their faith was to hold God's word and to obey God's truth. It wasn't manipulating God's hand. One commentator I read said this, Faith's finest hour may be when it comes, it can oppose Nebuchadnezzar's three words, burning fiery furnace with three of its own, but if not. Faith is saying God can do it, but even if he doesn't, I still hope in him. I still trust in him. So that's where you draw your line. You take a stand. You can politely non-participate and say no. Stand in your faith in Christ. Is God going to bless you for it? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The level of the obedience alone. You know, in this paragraph, their obedience just, you know, it's really like just brought me to my knees this week. It's been really challenging thinking... You know, God has given us a vision um, as a church. And through that process, you know, personally for me and Steve, God has given us dreams and words and pictures. And, and some of those things are really grand. You know, and one of those things that has been, has been hard for me is that God gave us a real clear physical dream. Um, gave Steve a physical dream and he drew a picture of this dream that God had given him of this building and and what it would look like and he sent it off to um, the architects, you know, and they redrew it, although they said they would give him a job if he wanted it. (laughs) He does these random things in his spare time. Um, And they came back to us. They came back to us with um, a prize for this, and it was it was staggering, and it was a bit overwhelming. And this ins- what ensued was days of debate <laughs> um, about why God would give us this picture and tell us, give us all these words about this magnificent building, and then it's going to cost this much, and you kind of hold your breath. And for me, there was so much personal stuff going on in that moment because I was like, I don't understand, God, why you would call us to spend all this money on a building. Surely there's, you know, there's so many worthier causes that we could spend money like that on. And this was a conflict in my heart because, you know, many of you might know we've got um, Restore, our charity from here, and we see lots of people on a on a weekly basis who are struggling. And so for me, it was almost like ensued this back and forth with God. It's like, how can you say that to me? We're hearing wrong. And da-da-da, it was, it was, it was constant. And until he just said, he said to me, why can't you just be obedient? And it was like, mm. <laughs> I don't want to be obedient. <laughs> um, why can't you just be obedient? You know, and through that conversation with God, I was like, because... Lord, I just, I just know that not everyone's going to share in that vision. I know that people are going to be upset by that. I know that people will leave, and people have left, and it's been heartbreaking. 
And I'm like, God, why would you do that? Why would you, why would you give me this vision, this vision for this church and for this city? And, and then people would leave because they don't agree. It's heartbreaking for me. You know, and he, just like this, he was like, well, I haven't asked you to live for any of those people. I've asked you to be obedient to me. I've told you what I want you to do, and you can do it, or I'll just find someone else to do it. <laughs> because God's love and passion and plan for this, this town we live in isn't going to stop. And so I just have to say, okay, God, if it means that I have to go into the fire to be part of what you're doing here in this place, then I'll go. And it doesn't matter uh, that I won't be on my knees. I'll be on my knees and I'll be crying (laughs) because I want to serve him. I want to be obedient to him. Anyway, digress. Then I... No, let's move on. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, other clothes, I'm not sure how much they could have had on, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers that took them up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and harmed, and the fourth looks like the son of gods or an angel. You know, what I notice is that God didn't keep them out of the furnace. So did God deliver them from the furnace? No, because they were in it. But did God deliver them from the furnace? Yes, because he was with them. They didn't get hurt or harmed. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. You can imagine it. He's gone up. He's like, this is weird. Come here, come here. I want to know what's happening. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, just casually been in a burning fire, strolling out. The satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. What a miracle. You only have to walk past someone's garden who's having a barbecue, and you get home, you're like, smelling that for days. And Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. 
Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. I think for a moment there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going like, yes, he believes in the God that we serve and he's telling everyone and then he's like saying we're going to burn their houses and they're probably like, wait, wait, that's not what God wants you to do. But the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. These men, these three men, knew how to redemptively participate in their culture. They had served. They were set over the affairs in the province of Babylon. They didn't just get there by who they knew. They'd assimilated themselves in. They'd worked hard. But remember, when they arrived, they were refugees. And they had a lot to learn. But they chose not to fully immerse themselves. But they did a great job in their service to Babylon. And I would say that maybe a point of clarification is that when we're thinking about shaping the culture around us, I don't think that necessarily has to be a thing where we're shaping that entire culture of you know, the whole of the United Kingdom. But what we can be is a part of shaping cultures with a little c. And a culture is where two or more people are in a place and they have a point of view. We have an opportunity to shape the small places. Whether you're a full-time mum, whether you're working a team or a team leader, maybe you're a company that works on computers or distribution, or maybe you're a teacher, a lawyer, a judge, any of those things listed. Or you might be the person who writes the little names, you know, on the Starbucks cups or the little sticky notes. That's fun. If you have, you know, if you've got any kind of job like that and there's more than one or two people in the place that you work, you can shape that culture. You can apply that redemptive influence in all those places. You see, those places are the places where we get to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done in our places of business as it is in heaven. Where you can serve in Jesus' name. Where you can love. This is a place where you get to bring the kingdom of God to. You get to bear witness. You may get the opportunity to pray for people because you've got to know them and you invest in that relationship. This is a place where you can speak vocally about your faith in Christ. There are places where you can bring the kingdom of God. That is redemptive participation. Most of our time in the Northamptonshire will be spent figuring out ways to participate in living as a creative minority, as followers of Jesus. You know, I think for me, many of my friends, and for me, I find no greater joy in life than bringing the kingdom of God to bear on my three children. That's a hard job. (laughs) You know, but quietly working away at subverting the kingdom of this world with three children so that they will know and love Jesus as Lord. 
And hopefully my, my prayer is that they'll resolve as teenagers, as young adults, like Daniel and his friends did, to serve God and God alone. Christ is Lord of our lives. And my active decision to love and treat my children well is actively choosing to live a life of worship to the Lord and subvert what this world would bring to them. This is me, this is us, redemptively participating in the life of the town we call home. Most of our time will be spent this way. It should worry us a little bit when we see the news, when we see how culture is trying to shape and form us to shift our thinking. And it's so subtle. It's so subtle. And it starts right from when they're tiny. The the messages and the stories that are fed in just are not stories of how God would choose for us to live. And we need to learn that. We need to learn to think rightly on how we use our power, our money, how we, how we don't adopt our nation's ideologies and God's. We have to practice non-participation in our culture, in our culture's idea of sex, say that a lot because it's an easy one, you know, especially where we live, especially, you know, since the sexual revolution having its impact here. Sex in our culture is individualistic, self-fulfilling, it's a free market, it's consumeristic, there's no covenant. And quietly as Christians, saying no to that with our hearts and our bodies, saying it's a covenant, it's saying that quietly with our hearts, we're going to live in a culture that doesn't really have an idea of freedom because they don't know God's idea of freedom. Freedom in our culture is is autonomy to do what you want when you do it as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else and you can just get on with it. But it's not like that when you're following Jesus. Freedom of living under the rule of Jesus. He frees us from sin. He frees us from shame. To live into a world who we were created for and by God. It's freedom in God's economy. It's freedom from materialism. It's just being able to say enough is enough. We don't have to have it all. We don't have to have everything the world offers us. You know, this church is here and we gather from from all over the county in this building once a week to corporate worship. And this worship is one of the primary arenas where we get to participate in practices that shape who we are. Where, you know, we sing, we kneel, we stand, we pray, we receive communion. And we say with our lips and we say with our body, our hearts and our minds, we say that Jesus is Lord. Over and over we say that Jesus is Lord. Take my whole life and I put it under his lordship. You know, just even as we sang there, 
It's difficult because you are saying that you are giving up your life, you are taking your whole body, and you're saying whatever you say is the way to live. That is how I want to live. And the vision of this church isn't necessarily, it's not to be hyper cool or relevant or whatever, it's just to counterform us into people who follow Jesus in a very formative culture that we live in. It's not easy, it was never meant to be easy. The Lord invites us to say yes to the fiery furnace, to be a creative minority. But we have to ask ourselves the question if we are ready to politely decline the invitation to worship other idols and gods. We have to be resolved that, we, that we're going to enter into the furnace and we enter into the furnace and the rest is up to God. Let's stand and pray.